welcome to the XY Advisor podcast. To join a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. Both Zurich and OnePath life insurance offerings deliver the broadest range of offerings in the market with a combined four distinct solutions on offer to better serve all Australians. At Zurich and OnePath, we believe in the value of advice and the professionals who provide it. This means investing in more ways to help your clients and making it easier for you to do business with us. To find out more about how we can help you and your clients, contact your Zurich and OnePath life or Zurich Investments representative today. Today, how's it going? What do you know? Strike a light. Clayton here from XY Advisor speaking with uh, Dr. Moira Sommers. We just had a really good conversation before we hit record. So I <laughs> uh, uh, would love to go through that. And uh, one of the things that became very clear very quickly is that you understand A, financial planning really well, uh, B, you understand um, mental health, and C, you're actually quite experienced in this exact topic around uh, getting people back to work once they're in, you know, once they're on insurance payments. So thank you from dialing in all the way from Canada after a very long day. I appreciate your time. Ah, it's lovely to be here. Lovely to talk to you. <laughs> um, so uh, when we were going through the list of people that we wanted to speak, you know, regarding this, this issue, our head of operations, Chilla, she is a lecturer at a university down here and, um, and she brought you up because of all the work you've been doing around this space could you give us, by way of background, a little bit of context as to, uh, you know, how you ended up in this um, area of expertise? Sure. So I am a neuropsychologist by training, and I teach at a medical school. Uh, I teach medical doctors how to deliver advice more effectively. In my clinical work, I deal with people who have uh, pretty significant health problems, Clayton. So. You know, it may be something that is progressive and debilitating and ultimately fatal, like a Lou Gehrig's disease diagnosis or a severe dementia. It could be something that is um, temporary. Maybe somebody was injured in an accident or uh, somebody has developed a mental health problem that is expected to recover. So everything from temporary and quite manageable to um, uh, fatal and um, and and not recoverable. And as part of that, it's been my job to do the assessments and to determine whether somebody is currently capable of working or not, and what might be required so that they could get back to work in some capacity, or if not, how can they nevertheless um, have a meaningful and and uh, worthwhile, uh, a life that feels to them that it's worthwhile. So that's the capacity. In, in recent years, I was asked to bring some of my knowledge around what makes it hard for people to follow healthcare advice to the domain of financial planning and what makes it hard for people to follow financial advice. Regrettably, in both spheres, um, it tends to be the behavior of the professional giving the advice that carries more more variance than the, the behavior of the person receiving it. But that's that'll be a talk for another day. 
<laughs> well, that's, that must, that's so interesting. Um, and and the, what you've just said there, there's so many angles to unpack. One, I guess I wouldn't mind starting at the top. Uh, in terms of, um, from a medical point of view, what is a mental health problem that's temporary compared to a mental health problem that's permanent? Uh, well, I suppose anything can become permanent. And even sometimes some of the gravest problems that we think are just not amenable to any kind of, um, to any kind of intervention, suddenly either they come up with a better intervention or something seemingly kind of miraculous happens that, that, that something changes in the person's life. So we know that there are some things, for example, that are developmental problems, um, something like autism, for example, where it's very rare that somebody would be completely asymptomatic of, of a developmental kind of uh, uh, condition like that. Um, chances are that with early intervention, people can become very highly functional, and uh, but they themselves will indicate that, you know, there are things that are just harder for them than for other people, some things that are easier for them than other people. And so it remains kind of a, a difference that's manageable for some folks. It's very severe, as you know, that, that some people's autism is not so easily treated. We might, so that's kind of the example of something that doesn't usually go fully away, even with the best interventions, Sure. Uh, but may actually still be, be workable and even turn into a, a strength at some, in some situations. A more temporary kind of thing may be a depression, a grief reaction, a, uh, an anxiety disorder, uh, your basic spider phobia, um, something like a social phobia that may with treatment get better, or it may with continued avoidance or continued uh, neglect of some of the things that contribute to depression and anxiety may deepen and become harder for people to extricate themselves from or heal from. When someone experiences a mental health episode, a, a bout of depression, or high levels of anxiety, and in, in this country, there is the potential and the possibility to claim on a disability insurance or an income protection insurance, these types of things. And from a rudimentary point of view, an advisor has done an awesome job when that happens to a client and the advisor is able to facilitate a claim and to help this client. Um, where things get a little bit messed up is when, let's say, my client has a depression, they go on claim. And let's say as an advisor, I've done such a good job that they're actually making, in some cases, more money. And then in others, it's very close to the same amount of money. Uh, while on claim compared to when they were working. Um, this creates a situation where people are almost incentivized to not get back to work. From your point of view, would you in a million years consider the best interest of that client to never get back to work? You know, when we're... <sighs> When we're doing disability assessments as healthcare providers, one of the things that we're looking for are, are there any disincentives for this person to get back to work? And financial disincentives are just one of many. It is rare in Canada for somebody to be better off while on insurance than 
in the workplace, at, at least from the financial point of view. Yeah. It's rare that people are not taking some kind of hit. Uh, but nevertheless, that does happen. Sometimes there are multiple insurance policies. Um, but there are other disincentives, Clayton. There are things like uh, maybe there's somebody, maybe their spouse is at home off work too. And uh, that usually is a bad predictive indicator. If you've got more than one person in the house on disability, it is often very hard to get uh, the next person off it. If you have uh, a terrible, terrible work situation that, you know, perhaps the person has been bullied, traumatized, perhaps they have been promoted, the Peter principle, you know, promoted to the, the point where they're not able to function adequately in the role and there's no going back to a, to a better, or where they may be in the um, sort of, above 50 but before the point where they could get an adequate uh, retirement pension and it's super super difficult for them to consider any other form of work that would give them anywhere near the income that they've been used to so those are just you know off the top of my head examples of disincentives for going back to work we know however that work has remarkable health boosting properties for it. At least most work does. Most of us, when we are not working, are a little closer to being unwell than we are when we are working. Like I said, there there are some terrible work situations that um, are definitely the exception to this. But, you know, we were we were kind of designed, I think, to be making contributions and to be actively engaged in things other than just ourselves, other than just our family, even. And when, those, when the option of making those contributions is taken from us through some sort of disability, then it often becomes more difficult for us to get better. A temporary respite from that is often critical, but for that to be permanent, we have to think really carefully about whether that truly represents the highest quality of life for that individual. Many of your financial professionals will have seen this at a slightly different perspective in just looking at retirement. We can set people up for just financially kick-ass require retirements. Yeah. That is no guarantee for a great quality of life, is it? And we know yeah. that if people are not actively engaged in something once their work life ends, that they are on the fast track to decline. Yeah. And so it can be very much the same with mental health disability, that you have to be really circumspect and involve mental health professionals around this, around helping people dis to discern whether some kind of return to work plan is in their best interest. Do you see financial planners and clinicians, clinical psychologists, uh, working together more in the future? Is, is this a trend that you've seen grow over time? Or, or Because I used to have my own practice and I never considered having a clinical psychologist as a, as a center of influence or as someone that I was recommending to. However, as I've been doing this series and I've been talking to people 
um, it's become clear to me that that was probably a gap in my process that I wasn't considering. Um, I'm sure uh, you know you were the keynote speaker at the XYPN, um, and I feel like you're in a really good position to be able to give this view, which is the more that advice moves across into this life planning psychology, you know, uh, keeping people, um, how would you say, on, on the right track and help changing what that right track is and so much more than, than investments. And yet it, it is largely a, a skill that's learned on the job. And yet advisors, the more that we get comfortable with this type of behavior and the, the better that the skill set becomes, it's still very pure, right? Like it's still at its very early stages. You know, the equivalent is where, where the, the barbers became the surgeons back in the day, right? We've only just put down the, 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 the scissors, right? And picked up the scalpel. We don't really know what we're doing. So, but we're really aware that this is something that needs to get looked at as a whole industry is there a point or is there a moment that advisors should be looking for where they say actually i would love for you to speak to this psychologist here so much of what you said is uh is resonating. You know, one of the reasons that I became interested in the whole area of financial advice was because I was watching what would happen to people who were suddenly injured or be, or ill if they weren't in good relationship to money. Hmm. And it, it wasn't about net worth. It wasn't about how much they were earning. It was stuff like, did they know how to have tender money conversations? Did they know how to engage in joint decision-making? Did they know how to live below their means? Because if they didn't have any of those skills going into the hard times, it was really hard for them to develop it on the fly. But here's the thing. Most mental health professionals are not at all trained to even talk about financial stress with people. You know, the the American Psychological Association puts out surveys year after year asking people what their biggest source of stress is. And year after year, guess what tops the list? It's money. And all of the things that flow from that, including, you know, your living situations and your job situation. But we get zero training on how to actually help people do anything with that stress. I have more training on dealing with people's foot fetishes or snake phobias than I, than I did, you know, coming out of graduate school about money. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. And then at the same time, I look at financial advisors training and to this day, you still don't have to have even a rudimentary course in communication. Yeah. Crazy. To get, major licensing, CFA, CFPs, you know, insurance designations. It's like, I don't know who you think you're advising, but maybe a course in working with humans would be, uh, you know, a great. <laughs> so if we could become like the peanut butter cups of, yeah. of, of professions where we start, you know, getting better at enlisting each other's services, you know, that, that's kind of like rudimentary step. Do we have each other in our, uh, you know, in olden days, it would have been the Philofax, and today it's in the contact uh, list. Are we in each other's contacts? And do we know how to make skillful, timely referrals? And that's a great question because, um, and 
I, I don't mean to jump in there, but that truly is such a huge question because mm. um, for me, and I was speaking with this, with an advisor who uh, does exactly this, but the reason why he's so good at it is because he has seen as a client himself, these clinicians, right? And so he's able to say, Hey, I saw this person when I was going through something like this. You can, mm -hmm. and and um, that is an unbelievably great strategy. But not every financial planner out there can use that strategy. Mm -hmm. So when you just mentioned, do we have the skills to be able to to provide timely referrals? Mm -hmm. Do you have a suggestion for advisors on how to even do that? One suggestion. <laughs> let, let me kill my darlings while I think about that. <laughs> it's a tough um, question. It is a tough question, and and the reason why I'm I, the reason why I'm asking is because I haven't solved it yet, right? Because as as a great advisor, you need to ask great questions, right? And I was on a journey. I would never call myself a, a great advisor. I've spoken to great advisors, and always the best advisors have the best questions, and so. Um, a little while ago, we did an ethical investment series. And the more I spoke to people about ethical investments, the more I realized that there is, a, is an inherent judgment, right? When you're asking someone if they want to invest ethically or not, because whether if you ask someone that question sort of straightforward, they're either going to answer in the positive or the negative. And then there's sort of judgment connotations to both of those and it skews the conversation, right? And so I, 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 over the course of the series, I, my goal was to, to figure out how to ask a great question around uh, ethical investing. And that, that came in the end, it was, um, you know, along the lines of when you go shopping, do you, do you pay attention to whether you're purchasing caged eggs or free ranged eggs, or do you have ethical uh, sort of like skews in your day-to-day -day shopping and purchasing decisions? That's kind of like, that's a much easier conversation to say is this something you pay attention to as you go about your day-to-day -day life um because then there's you can if they if they answer the affirmative then you can pursue that line of questioning more and end up at ethical investments if they answer in the negative then there's probably a good chance that they're not going to care about where where their investments go and it's a it's a nice little i guess entry point into how, how you can discover that information without making the client feel awkward in any way and and this idea that advisors and psychologists need to work together more is, uh, and I'm almost ashamed to say it's something I've never really considered before starting this uh, mental health series. Mm. And it's, and, and every, and as I'm speaking to more and more experts, I'm realizing, okay, this is a huge gap in my knowledge. Um, and, and then, so the question becomes, how do I ask the quote, how do I pose it? Because it's awesome if you've seen the psychologist and it really connects that person to the referral, that's really good. But is there, uh, is there some, some way that we can, because if, if I've got a client sitting in front of me and I say something, I would say something stupid. I would say something along the lines of, Oh, you seem really sad. Have you seen a, a psychologist? Mm -hmm. And I can see how that could end up being not a great question to ask because it almost does one or two things. It puts too much pressure on the person, I guess, to answer uh, either, either way. And then again, there's judgments to, to how they answer that. And also it means I'm judging them as well. And so if, if I consider all of that, maybe it's just, I'm being too sensitive, but I, I like to sort of, I like to at least consider 
maybe there's uh, a good way to, to ask a question. I think, I think I love that you put that question out there and I'm hoping that the people listening to this podcast will just, will chime in and, <laughs> and, and perhaps there's some, some really great ways of looking at this. I think I can't just give you one. There's just sure. too many yeah. good, good possibilities out there, but you know, look, if you're going to engage in life, so if you're, if you're moving along the continuum or if the profession is moving along the continuum yeah. from sort of being a product salesperson to doing financial planning to doing life planning with people, yeah. if, if that's your goal as an individual, then uh, first of all, you probably have a little bit of a bent towards wanting even to have deeper conversations. I just really want to encourage financial advisors to realize how often they really are on sacred ground with people. You guys are the ones who often are the first people to learn, other than the healthcare provider who gave the news, you are often the first people in that person's life to know that they've just received a fatal diagnosis. You may be the first person uh, who they've told that they are planning on leaving their spouse. You may be one of the first persons that gets the call when they've just received the great news about the sports contract or the business sale or the devastating news that they've been laid off. You are most likely to be brought in during some of the toughest and the best times of people's lives. And that is an opportunity for job satisfaction in the advisors that is just incredible if you have that bent. And so to trust yourself that you can develop skills to be with people, to be present with people, and to learn how to do what was, it used to be called in the, in the literature, it used to be called optimal support matching. How's that for <laughs> jargony? But it, it's figuring out what kind of support is most valuable for people. And it just starts with empathy. You know, empathy rarely goes awry. Your ability to sit with warmth and compassion with people and to hear what they're telling you without feeling like you need to fix it or stop it, that rarely goes wrong. And sometimes that is the entire, uh, you just earned your salt simply by providing that. For some people, they just want information in a sort of cut and dried way. They want to know, okay, is there an alcohol treatment center for my child who's going off the rails? Right. And you, you say, because you know, people, yes, here it is. And I'm going to email it to you. Uh, Cause you know, we may, this is so tough for you that I'll just make sure that a, a combination of the spoken and the written word comes your way. Cause that's going to be easier to, to remember. And sometimes they will say, I need, I need advice. I have no, clue what to do right now yeah and you can say again with all the empathy in the world i totally get that i don't know that you can know what to do but i know that there are people whose job it is to to help walk us through these times would you like me to give you some names of people who i know to be good at this that would be excellent that like if I was your client, I'd feel so comfortable with you doing like approaching it that way. That's mm-hmm. I, I, and and that whole idea of being able to ask great questions that 
is precisely along the lines of because it is so serious and and I guess you know I'm I'm asking it in a in a lighthearted fashion because mm-hmm. uh, that's typically the tone of the podcast but the, I get I, the the outcomes of uh, these situations are so intense that they're kind of like they're really important to have and I guess this is why this podcast exists because there's people like you who uh, who are who focus so much on the human side and then you've brought in, which is the biggest stress in life money. And so you, you, you're, and, and there's this awesome, I guess, body of work out there, which as Carl Richards said last night, we somehow haven't managed to go linear. It's just, you know, let's say 40 years ago, there was one or two people speaking about the whole idea of what financial planning could be. And now, it, and then, it was 5% of the market and there was 10% of the market, but we haven't, it, it's not like this. Everyone is progressively getting to this point. There's a bigger percentage of people that are, and uh, I'm not sure what it's like in Canada, but over here, at least to what I can see, I would say probably 25% of the advisor population are working towards becoming this person who's very good at everything in including people and money. Mm-hmm. So it's not just, uh, the, they're not just focused on the investments. And so um, thank you for that awesome piece because my goal and my job is to get as many of those pieces of knowledge to add to the, mm-hmm. to the whole piece as, as, as possible. So there is, you know, there's, there's these other from things really little and very easy to do to, to things that are kind of radical. So a little thing is, do you make it a point? Is it in your, uh, in your CRM, in your client paperwork system? Do you know the healthcare benefits that everybody in that family is entitled to? What are the extended benefits? What do they get for mental health? Uh, if they're a university student, what do they is there any private coverage for marriage therapy, social work, um, drug and alcohol treatment, psychotherapy? Um, because it's pretty darned hard to get better from some of these major mental health problems without intervention. Um, if they go to the family doctor, they will get what family doctors know how to do, which is typically prescribed. But that does, you know, that doesn't help people overcome the avoidance patterns that doesn't solve the social relationship that doesn't deal with the addiction um, in, in a way that makes people puts people on solid ground with respect to their recovery. So what else is available Um, through free community resources, through private insurance that somebody might have. And again, as a financial advisor, you are in a position to be able to nudge people to say, look, you're sitting on, on a lot of money that you could be using right now to be making life better for you and your family. You mm-hmm. could be setting up this, uh, chi- this adult child who's struggling to have a much better trajectory if you would simply, instead of doling things out in a crisis basis, be able to, to really set that young woman up on more solid ground. And an even more radical idea in terms of the industry itself is to do what I'm starting to see some firms do, 
which is to have psychologists either embedded in the firm. The psychologist is, you know, comes in at the initial intake meeting. Uh, or uh, is just kind of on call where, you know, I, I have that function in a number of firms with their ultra high net worth clients where they say, you know, we will pay for Moira's involvement or we'll pay for a session or two. And then if you want to, if, if it turns out to be something longer term, you can, you know, carry on with her on your nickel. Uh, and, and I know that I'm certainly not, I didn't pioneer this. This is something that, that more and more firms are doing all over the world. So, you know, as I said, from ideas really little, like who do you have in your own network and do you know what their policy is to how close do you have as an advisor the collaborative skills to work in this really seamless manner? To collaborate is very different from being the one in charge, isn't it? Like you're not always, sometimes you step back and you may disagree and you may have to take each other to the mat once the client's out of the room. But to collaborate is really one of the highest order skills, I think, that any profession can learn how to do. I love the idea, even though you've placed it as radical, it is almost a rational next step for the industry as a whole. So if we say two things, one, mental health is on the rise, and that is a whole conversation. And I'm definitely not going to ask you exactly why that's happening because even though you've probably got a, a very good opinion on it, I think it's a it's a crazy topic. At least I know one thing. I know it's definitely on the up and up and I don't see it going away. Um, so if we look at that being number one, and number two being uh, insurance companies uh, are, you know, paying out money and suffering the consequences of this new uh, problem that's in the world and they're losing millions and billions of dollars and we don't know if the industry can succeed in the long term you know without sort of government intervention and your radical solution which i think is probably just a rational solution is to for advisors to be fully aware of what benefits on the prevention side of things are possible and what would be even better is if it wasn't the financial planner that was having to fork out the cost but actually the insurance company if the insurance company was as you said you know you should be looking at all the t's and c's and what's currently available i think the only probably rational solution for for the future of both financial advice and insurance is to head a lot of this stuff off at the pass because otherwise, otherwise it's, it's gone. So, you know, at, at every level of funding, that is an insight that's, it's like glaringly obvious uh, and yet so deeply neglected, but Australia is on the world um, radar for the things that you guys have been doing with early childhood intervention. So for example, with that autism, autistic child that I mentioned at the outset of this podcast, you guys have some of the most rigorous and evidence-based and genius interventions. Wow. And the, the financial, like let, let's just leave our little bleeding human hearts out of this, but just the financial cost for doing those interventions pale in comparison to what happens to these folks if they don't get intervened with early. Totally. And so, so at, let's just, that's at the level of kind of public health care funding. The more 
40% of ER visits in Canada are really mental health problems. An ER visit is crazy expensive. It's just outrageous. You could easily be providing um, mental health interventions for people with anxiety disorders. You could provide so many, you could fund so many public health psychologists um, at that level. But insurance companies, in fact, Clayton, are doing more and more. Um, if you, if at least they are in North America and in England. Um, first of all, they often will insist that somebody on a mental health claim is getting appropriate mental health treatment, and they're the ones funding it. Yeah. Uh, and so there are these partnerships. Um, sometimes they feel, um, to the patient, they can feel very unsafe, and they can feel like there's crossing of boundaries. But often helpful partnerships between you know funders and healthcare providers whether that's physiotherapist for somebody with chronic pain problem or you know occupational therapist for somebody who's uh who's just can't go back to the workplace ergonomic setup as it was to um broader organizational interventions when there are systemic contributors to things like burnout you know, and so every like minute again to, to really big. I think that if you're going to do any volunteer work as a financial advisor in this area, that you can also be really advocating that more and more people have access to mental health treatments. So providers like Starbucks, for example, in the States, they, they took a look at their disability insurance claims, realized that the runaway candidate for you know leading cause of disability in their uh under 30-ish workforce was mental health claims oh yeah so uh, within north america permanent actually i'm not sure whether it even covers part-time as long as they're permanent part-time staff but anyway they've covered 10 sessions with a psychologist per year that wow you know they don't just do it because they've got a social conscience. They do it because there's an economic case to do it. Well, I mean, it's awesome that those two things line up, right? It, no, I don't think society wants people because there's a thing where if you claim for mental health or you claim for any reason, then if you're not off that claim within you know, a certain amount of time, then something else is going to go wrong. You're going to degenerate further and further and further. And so it's almost like if someone gets plucked up and put into this position where they're on claim. And if they're not managed, then they can just, their whole life can, can be over and it can go from one problem to the next. And so um, it's, it, there's that huge piece about prevention. Uh, and if it could be as simple as paying for 10 sessions per employee per year, the savings just so happen to be socially responsible, which mm-hmm. let's face it, not capitalism and um, what's good for society doesn't always go hand in hand. Oftentimes it doesn't, but I think in this case it does. And so, um, and so I'm a big fan. And, and another glaringly obvious thing is when I was providing insurance advice, I didn't know any of this stuff. I didn't know what was currently available from the insurance company. I think that's, I'm, I'm probably uh, an example of, widespread lack of knowledge around what is available for psychological help that that's immediately available to clients who, who currently are uh, insurance clients. Um, I think it's a, it's a, it makes so much sense. I think your radical idea to me is 
very rational. <laughs> well, let me give one more, which might get a little pushback, but many of the people that listen to you are employers themselves. Yes. I would just challenge you to look at, so what do you give to your employees? What, what's covered in your extended uh, healthcare benefits and how did you negotiate that? If you're like most, it went to the lowest bidder, if you have anything. Mm. Um, and so that might be, you know, uh, an EAP program that you've never really looked into. And it turns out it's staffed by people who aren't even, they don't even have it in their um, licensure that they can properly diagnose because they're just people with bachelor's level education um, and they can handle general level stress, but they may not be able to handle um, severe mental illness. And so looking into, you know, what do your own employees have in terms of healthcare spending accounts and can they direct funds? What do you have for your own family? These are, these are really important things to be considering. People can absolutely get better uh, with severe problems uh, of all kinds. Cognitive, you know, the U.S., government has done things with um, soldiers who come back from se severe or moderately severe brain injury following blast injuries in the battlefield. And what they found is that um, you can take those folks and send them home and wait till they get better, or you can invite them back to work as soon as possible, giving them duties that they can do. And if at first all they can do is kind of wash the coffee mugs, then let them wash the coffee mugs. But the evidence is, is just irrefutable that the sooner we get people back to an accommodating workplace, the better they fare, even when the injury has been that profoundly neurological. As a, as a neuropsychologist, I'm, you know, I deal with people who have things like multiple sclerosis, where you know, it's not the disease process is still ongoing, but boy, can we make recommendations for the kinds of environments and interventions that make work possible, mm. even part-time work possible. Are, is the nature of the disability insurance policy that you've sold them, does it actually disincentivize part-time work? If it does, shame on them. <laughs> they, yeah, need yeah. better, they need a better um, model for this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I think right now the COVID crisis is making governments the world over. Look at, you know, should we just bite the bullet and do the basic minimal income? Because it's sure costing us billions of dollars to make up stuff on the fly that we know is going to be both abused and grossly inadequate anyway. So, you know, what if we actually were more thoughtful about making sure that people have enough to live on and then helping get them to a place where they want to work and they are psychologically capable of withstanding the rigors of work? Because mental health is not just the absence of mental illness, is it? It's, it's about vitality at so many levels, including financial wellness. Mm -hmm. And you guys contribute so much. Because if you don't have financial wellness, it's hard to have wellness at any other level, right? The biggest, um, if we're going to look at what has the, uh, what's the biggest determinant of health or of ill health, it's poverty. Yeah. Pardon. Poverty is the single 
biggest determinant of ill health at all levels. So the work that you guys do to help move people into financial st um, stability, into thriving, is so critical and so helpful. And, and every step of the way that you, you develop your own ability to work with people, as I said, during some of the worst days of their life and some of the best days of their life, there is this huge spin-off effect for society as a whole. You wrote a book, Advice That Sticks, and you do a lot of work with advisors as well. So it's kind of interesting. You have a very unique view in that you understand uh, what advisors or how advisors think and how advisors do a better job and also how their clients think and how their clients do a better job. Um, with respect to your time, because I know you've had a very long day, and so I won't keep you beyond our allocated time. So perhaps just as a, a parting idea, um, what would you say to advisors out there that want to improve maybe just even by a singular step beyond going out and purchasing your book at all good bookstores? What is, uh, what is something that they could do to uh, connect with their clients and, and start delivering on this type of advice that brings in their psychology on a greater level. Wow. You keep wanting one bullet point, huh? <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the day, it's just really hard for me to come up with one. Uh, <laughs> they are tricky um, questions. They're definitely tricky guess, questions. You know, well, if, you know, if there was one thing that they could stop doing, mm. it's stop talking so much. Really learn how to listen. You know, we train medical doctors. We give them years of training in this very principle. And, you know, two years out of school, the average physician interrupts within 15 seconds. So like, we're still, we still really haven't nailed this problem. But it is the thing that makes the biggest difference. The more airtime a client gets in a meeting with you, the more satisfied that client is. And the more that you are listening the more attuned the advice that you can give. So really developing those listening skills and which requires you to stop talking. You had the wonderful Carl Richards on yesterday. He does a, a great training program called the fellowship, which sounds like something out of the Da Vinci code. Like, Oh my goodness, is that a cult? But it's not, it's actually really excellent training. Um, and then there is something like the Financial Transitionist Institute, which does a much deeper dive and a certification process. And there are people within Australia who have been through that who are wonderful exemplars of that. But, um, and, you know, I, I consult to that institute so I, I can vouch for the quality of the training. But as you said, Clayton, there, you know, there's, there's a, a groundswell of interest in this. You're, and, and I'm so excited to see that. And I hope that it's matched by equal commitments in healthcare to get better at understanding the financial implications, just as you guys are getting better at understanding the human implications. Thank you so much for your time. Honestly, uh, I've learned so much on a personal level. I'm sure many advisors out there will as well. Um, if, if there's any advisor that wants to reach out, say hi, um, can you give me some help with my advice? Because I know you, you do work with advisors as well. Um, how do they find you? Go to my website, moneymindandmeaning.com if you'd like to learn more about the work that I do. 
uh, as you said, the, the book is a good place to start in terms of it's more than just even the two things that we mentioned, the fact that there's both client behavior and advisor behavior. There are kind of at least three other domains that we didn't even mention today that influence the likelihood of follow through. And so you can just start learning about what some of those things are. And then I'm on, you know, I'm on LinkedIn and you can find me. I'm, I would be really bad in a witness protection program. So yeah. I'm easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for giving your time. I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, it was lovely to talk to you. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.